Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know, we release our podcasts in three different formats. We have our seminar series, which is the chance to listen back to presentations or previous events. We have our 10 minute lesson series, which does what it says on the tin. We look at key policy areas and try and explain them within a sort of eight to 15 minute time mark. And then we have our interview series, where we chat to policy experts on a really wide range of topics. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Carrie Ann Moran. Carrie Ann is an award-winning Irish social entrepreneur, recognised nationally as a leading voice on circular fashion. She is the director of Fashion Revolution Ireland. She's the founder and lead consultant at Circular Fashion Ireland. She has also served on the National Advisory Committee of the Irish Government for the implementation of the Waste Action Plan for a Circular Economy, and also as a judge on the European Commission's social innovation competition, Reimagined Fashion. So she chats with me about the global fashion industry, the impact that that has on emissions, and how we all, individual and industry, can move from a linear model to a circular model of fashion. I might begin, Carrie, with your journey, I suppose, your pathway to where you are today, because I think it's been quite interesting. Yeah, okay. Thanks. It's a nice way to, to kick off into this. So obviously I currently work in sustainability and circular economy with regards to the fashion and textile industry. But how I got here, yeah, absolutely was a bit of a rerouted journey initially. Most people I tell I started off actually being a fashion designer and that's how I came to this enlightened moment of, oh my God, if I'm working in this industry, I actually need to start addressing the good but the reason why I suppose I had that mindset is because I was training to be a solicitor before I actually went back to study fashion design and I was working in human rights and immigration. So I've always been, I suppose, very conscious about social injustices, worked very heavily in the Irish immigration industry for an amazing person. I was carried out with me in the, I suppose, the environmental side of it as well. I was always an environmentalist. Jump into being in college, studying fashion. Yeah, like just start to go, oh my God, what is going on in this industry? And you have to remember now we're going back ooh, 18 years. I'm going to round it off to 18 years. Um, when we didn't have a lot of the information that we have now. Yeah. So we certainly didn't have any science-based research or, you know, anything about this industry. But we, what we did have what was a lot of exposés done on social injustices. And you had the likes of, say, Catherine Hamnett, really kind of trailblazing this way of, you know, she's one of my absolute favorite um, trailblazers in this area because she basically bankrupted herself when she realized what was going on in her factories where she was producing her clothes. So, so yeah, massive light bulb moment there, trained as a fashion designer, and then actually worked as a fashion designer for my own label, but did a lot of really work we didn't even call it upcycling so my collections were all charity shop material finds because my old-fashioned studio used to be off Francis Street St. Augustine the loft down there so that area used to be big textile manufacturing and the local Oxfam used to have rolls of material which was amazing so you used to get a roll of material for like five quid or something and do like collections out of that so the terms weren't really there, but I was making clothes out of discarded materials. And then my journey, I suppose this was kind of hot, like noticed, and I worked with the Rediscovery Centre then. 
So I came on board to read Discovery Centre and kind of worked on this research area of bringing a textile social enterprise to life under the Rediscovery Centre. That was back in 2008, I think. And then in 2010, we launched the fashion programme of the Rediscovery Centre. And then I stayed with the Rediscovery Centre up until about 2019. So very long time. And the Rediscovery Centre is now the National Centre for the Circular Economy. So yeah, as you can imagine, for 10 plus years of work in their career massively changed, got very heavy, obviously, still into the brain inside of it, but also bring in environmental awareness to this industry. So I myself went back and trained in environmental management, did my master's in environmental sustainability, and then have since published research in and around how the fashion industry can transition, you know, via circular economic models, or if it can, you know, so mm-hmm. those kind of things. So yeah, then I suppose I launched Circular Fashion Ireland <laughs> a couple of years ago. So in around 17, 18 years, kind of covering the whole scope of sustainability and fashion, really. That is brilliant. And I think that's what probably more and more of us need is to be polymath, you know, bringing different aspects of different industries together. Yeah, and something yeah. In a new way. And I only realized when I when I cut this bit out of the paper that I, I'm developing a bad habit of putting in quotes into my podcast. So I thought oh, in good. for a penny, in for a pound. So this, I took it out of a weekend paper a couple of weeks ago, written by Amy Farrell. And it's about linen specifically, but it really struck with me. It really resonated with the conversation that you and me had had before. So what she says is the earliest fragments of linen date back roughly 30,000 years. Associated mm. with purity and prosperity for the ancient Egyptians, linen held the power to transform the everyday into the divine. It makes sense they would have revered this this textile, which represented hundreds of hours of labour to produce, Mm. says Cassia St. Clair, the author of The Golden Thread, a historical exploration of fabrics. Now we tend to throw textiles away, but then even a remnant was highly prized. Cloth really meant something to people and they understood its provenance and its weaves in a way that's been lost in the machine age. Mm. And then further on in the piece, she speaks to two, uh, an embroiderer and a designer, Chrysidia Jemison and Gemma Moulton. They're both the founder of East London Cloth. And they say that longevity was foremost in their minds when they conceived their family linens line close to two years ago. They were disenchanted by the traditional retail models. They decided to create tablecloths, napkins and cafe curtains. And what they were saying is they believe that if you can lay your hands on something straight away, you're more than likely to shove it just in the back of the cupboard. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that really resonated with yeah. the conversation we had. And and that I suppose all the discussions about just transition and sustainability, mm. we need to include fashion. And absolutely, clothing is such a, it, it's something that impacts all of us. So yeah. whether you think you're into fashion or not, you wear clothes. Yeah. So And, uh, and further than that, we're surrounded by textiles. Yeah. You know, so it's everywhere. We touch it, we sit on it, we wear it. You know, exactly what you said. Even if you're not into fashion, you are still wearing clothes, (laughs) even if you don't regard yourself as being fashionable. Um, Yeah, so it's it's such a huge industry. And and our our relationship with clothes has changed. I I was really struck by what you had said before about when you go and look at vintage wardrobes. Mm. The time. Yeah, I use that as an analogy sometimes in my education pieces to kind of show our progression because, yeah, you can talk about numbers. And I know we'll touch on stats mm. throughout our conversation today, but sometimes it's hard for people to really wrap their head around how when we say, oh, consumption of clothing has actually doubled in 20 years. Well, actually, let's just go back to in and around then and look 
the wardrobes that we used to have, tiny little wardrobes, um, little spaces. And that just represented the couple of outfits most people used to have and rewear or pass down and mend it and fix. And, you know, got touching on to your quote there, you know, really valuing the cloth and stuff like that, because, yeah, we 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 consume so differently. And even in my generation, as, as the fast fashion sprung to prominence when I was younger, um, you know, and I could see that massive shift. So, yeah, I always find that analogy really good that we don't really need stats. We can just look back in time and see how the physical aspect of a wardrobe has changed <laughs> so much. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I know you, you've done a little bit of homework for me. So we do have some stats, I think, ready mm. to hand. Um, I don't know where you want to start. Do we have an idea, I suppose, about the industry in general and how much? Yeah. So the industry, as you can imagine, is huge. Um, it sits somewhere. The value of the fashion, apparel, whatever, you know, wherever you're sitting globally and how you describe it, sits in around 1.7 trillion. It's valued at this year. So that's going to be a 13, 40 percent increase with COVID. The industry dropped in around 18 to 20 percent, depending on where you look at the stats there. But it is estimated in the next year or so to be hitting the two trillion mark. So that is with, you know, obviously the consumption of clothing um, massively still on a steady. We're not slowing down. We are moving and moving up and up like with this. So and then from a global workforce perspective, so we have in around 3.4 billion people globally mm-hmm. that form our workforce. And what I find so amazing with this is that 430 million people of these 3.4 billion work within the fashion, clothing, textile production. So wow. when I did my little um, fractions earlier on, it sits in around 7.8 person, but we just round up to like one in eight people work within this sector. That's how big this industry wow. is. I know it's phenomenal. Um, and I remember touching on this a couple of years ago, the research piece I was doing, but obviously with population growth and things like that, and there's new statistics on that, but yet one in eight people in the workforce is somehow working within this industry. That's amazing. So, yeah. It's the sustainability conversation. I'm cutting across mm. now because of my jaws no, dropped. Uh, for those who can't see, <laughs> but like the, the, you know, there's all these arguments about the agricultural sector. There's all these mm. arguments about the transport sector, mm. and and you're kind of going, we're not looking at this mm. really. Like, no, it's, it, wow, not. okay, yeah, and I, you know, because it's such a valuable industry, right. you know, it is, you know, it's part of GDP and stuff like that. You know, and people are making mass millions in our capitalist world that we live in billions i should say from this industry we don't have you know any proper regulate global regulation policy and stuff like that to rein this industry down and again if we just want to jump straight into where this industry sits you know from a climate perspective depending on your source sits somewhere in around eight to ten percent of all emissions are coming from the production of this industry you know, so why is this industry still unregulated? Well, it's because there is no global regulation on environmental data to be collected by the producers, by the brands, by the retailers. You know, they still have and everything that people sign up to within this industry is kind of voluntary done. So when we go, when we flip it back and push back onto this just transition conversation, 
so important that we really start to look at policy-driven conversations in the, around this area because expecting brands, designers, retailers, these big, massive, you know, companies to do it unwillingly, not really going to happen, is it? <laughs> well, I think expecting anybody who benefits from the system mm. to go in and change the mm. system is yeah. a, I've yet to see <laughs> mm. any, anybody ever do that. Do you know what I mean? Like if the state is yeah. Why would you yeah. change it unless you were going to benefit from the change? Yeah, yeah. Look, wow. and you know, you know, you do have, I suppose, just just the Fashion Act from New York, which is going to be a groundbreaking. That's really coming into prominence in spring. But that is where brands, again, let's just put this into scale, where brands, companies, designers, whatever you want to call them, um, are operating at in around 100 million. So they have to do the 100 million. It's like, you know, there is hundreds of thousands of companies and brands that operate into that scale. So you are looking at specific luxury kind of brand operation here, but they have to become transparent. So they have to disclose environmental data, slavery information, you know, full like do the proper due diligence across their supply chain and then disclose and stuff. So, but as I said, it's at you have to be operating a hundred billion in order to be actually you know you have to disclose so um that's a, that's a different conversation but you know it is coming down the line um and then from a European perspective we have waste framework directive coming in twenty twenty five about textile waste and disposal um subsidiary to that the circular economy bill that we're adopting in Europe and of course in Ireland that we brought in in the last couple of years but again we're still looking at recommendations on how we should do it. We're not enforcing um, still. So there's still a lot of groundwork to be done there on scoping out the industry in order to put these recommendations in and then enforce change from that as well. So, um, yeah, it's a big undertaking. You know, I'm not kind of trying to, I suppose be cynical or anything like that but we, we've just heard the scope of this industry the size of it yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a big one to undertake but you know it's grown at such a rate emissions are still going to keep on growing with that um the environmental impacts regardless of the emissions the environmental impacts that we're feeling globally are just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse absolutely and of course we're trying to work towards reducing our carbon emissions to round it all up the industry absolutely needs serious regulation policy to enforce it, to make it apt to change in order for us to reduce the carbon emissions that we are facing. I've got to go back to one word that you mentioned there, which is, well, to textile waste. Mm -hmm. um, what are people doing with their old clothes? What should they yeah. do with yeah. So I suppose we won't call it textile waste. We're no. going to talk about post-consumer textiles okay and post-consumer textiles to so just put that very simply is the stuff we don't want okay so we don't want it anymore what are we doing with that so from an Irish perspective there was a really fantastic EPA study done in the last couple of years and this showed that we are basically have post-consumer textiles of about 170,000 um, of which about 110,000 are being collected through household and commercial facilities. Um, then we have charity collections. It's in there about 40%. I think there are about 17,500 tonnes. 
And then we have reuse, recycling, and then a pre-loved market there. But they're all big numbers. What are we doing with it? Well, about 64% of all the stuff that we don't want anymore here in Ireland becomes waste. So it's either sent to waste energy or landfill. It's a huge number when we think about it from the 170. So I think it's about 109,000, 110,000 is becoming waste here in Ireland. And then we have the commercial textile recycling facilities. But that is a huge gray area here in Ireland because, again, it's very, it's not regulated. We have, and the one thing that I suppose really be, is a big bore of mine is the textile recycling industry in Ireland. And I'm, if I, I know you, people can't see me, but I'm doing like inverted <laughs> commas, bunny ears, because we're not recycling. They're not recycling, they're reprocessing it. So basically these commercial textile banks you see in around mm. Ireland, the stuff has built, most of it, just three main operators here in Ireland. I think most of them are through Northern Ireland. So we export via Northern Ireland and most of that stuff ends up, some of it goes into Eastern Europe, but most of it is landing, landing down in African countries. Right. So, you know, so we whilst we're landfilling, burning, we're exporting 40,000 tons or something like that. And then we don't really know where that stuff has gone, where it's been amazing. Like we have Texan Mountain, an Irish-based documentary that maps all this out. So listeners, I we can put all these things in the I'll, in I'll put notes a later on. Called? Yeah. At Texan Mountain. Okay. I came out a couple of years ago that really shows the damage and effect when we throw our textiles a waste, textiles away. Mm. Um so, yeah, so from a waste perspective here in Ireland, we're still, from what we're collecting, we're wasting this. We are fundamentally wasting this 64, 65%, but two thirds of those. And that is a generic over the board kind of wasting. Like going over my old research for this, when we talk about how much we're consuming globally, I was like, I always have said, I remember my research pieces saying, well, on a trajectory to 150 billion garments, well, we've surpassed that. Wow. <laughs> we're sitting, we're, I think we're sitting up at about 170 billion garments people are buying and consuming every year. And again, about two thirds become waste in a year due to this, due mostly to the fast fashion industry and disposable mindset in and around that. And again, when we talk about waste, we're talking about, we're, we're, yeah, out of sight, out of mind, but actually, unfortunately, it's either going to landfill, it's either being incinerated, which of course we know emissions from that, or it's becoming a massive issue for communities in parts of the world or beautiful deserts and things like that. We said there's so many exposés being, being done on this in the last couple of years that are stuff, I think this, what's that famous quote? Um, it's not thrown away, it goes somewhere or uh, just, oh, okay. yeah. And yeah. um, so I suppose what I'm trying to say there is just because it's out of our site, it's, yeah. it's landed somewhere else, basically. And that is what's happening um, globally with that. People don't want to be the human equivalent of an avocado bathroom or a germaline colored bathroom. We want to be up to date. We want to be reasonably current, you know. And yeah, then, yeah, of course. Stuff comes back round, but... There is that, yeah. So there is that pressure for people to not show up to work in the same thing every day. People not to show up to weddings in the same outfits. And mm -hmm. we need to get cleverer, I suppose. Yeah, but like we need, 
yeah absolutely you need we need to push back on Mm. this narrative you can't be seen dead in the same outfit we need to normalize re-wearing it's what what our generations of people did forever and ever you know so yeah like and I think just on the the latest kind of awards that are going on like the BAFTAs and Mm. things like that and there are people re-wearing stuff again you know that's not making the mainstream news it's kind of coming into my streamline yeah. of news because of all the people that I follow and stuff like that so you know we have to kind of normalize the re-wearing of our stuff when we realize what goes into our stuff to make our stuff it's absolutely fine to wear something again <laughs> but as you said like yeah that, that narrative about consumption and obvious mm. consumption it's it's where you sit your it's where you sit yourself in the I suppose if there's a hierarchy or a you know your socioeconomic peers or whatever you you're under pressure to look a certain way and to not look the same way again <clears throat> in two weeks time when you're back out there um, is but we have to remember yeah, that yeah. the fashion industry massively changed in the late 80s early 90s mm. and became this trend driven fast fashion model and the huge part of that is the marketing side of it. Yeah. Like the fast fashion industry is all about marketing. And, and, and with that telling us, we can't, we have to follow these trends. Mm-hmm. We have to follow these micro seasons and constantly change our look and our style all the time to look a certain way because this industry, again, I'm using a virtual comment, sorry. Because <laughs> this industry yeah. is telling us to do that. Now, to me personally, I think that's gas because why do you want to look like thousands of other people? Mm. You know, why don't you have your own style and your, you know, your unique sense of them? Because that's a, a separate conversation. Um, so yeah, the, the fast fashion industry has massively changed. And with that, it's so trend-driven. It pushes this on mm. to consumers that they have to look a certain way. And therefore, look in that certain way. What are you going to do? Buy their products, of course, to yeah. look that certain way. So when you look at sort of the, the the access to credit and that sort of buy now pay later model, mm. which I know mm. is a separate conversation, but I think fast fashion really plays into the younger cohort getting into debt for, you know, if you're already sick of an outfit before you finish paying for it, then there's there's definitely mm. there's a problem with that. And I, I'm always kind of conscious that, you know, we are we are encouraged, I suppose, to buy better quality, buy classier styles and all of that. But you know, I appreciate I'm I'm not 17 anymore. I, I I would probably find it hard to, you know, buy a classic Coco Chanel and then <laughs> wear that every weekend with different accessories. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's it's not really how the it's it's not how the whole system is set up. But no, and it's going to be very, very difficult. I think for individuals to swim to swim against the tide. You know, it is. It's mm. like, Mm. One of that dairy girls is the very four steps of the dairy girls when I think they've all got denim one of them turns up in a denim jacket or something like that and she thought they were all going to turn up in a denim jacket oh and yeah, said, yeah 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 she takes it off because she said I, I don't want to be an individual on my own and that always struck that's I can't remember her character's name with Nicola Coughlin I that's think her, wasn't yeah, it yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember that yeah brilliant I don't want to be an individual on my own <laughs> But I always Brilliant, have that. But, yeah. but I mean, even the, the textiles that we use, I suppose going back kind of touch on the, the, the waste bit or the, mm. I can't remember the phrase you used, but the, the fact that we're using more man made fibers, mm. 
so there's there's an emissions conversation about the creation of yeah. the materials and then how what we do with them afterwards and how long yeah. they'll last Yes. So I suppose usually when I talk about the environmental implications of this industry, I generally model it on the linear economic model where we take resources, make a product, use it and dispose of it. So I always think that's a really good kind of reference point. So I suppose from the fashion industry, textile industry perspective, we're exploiting resources at a massive rate. So whether that's through our natural materials or synthetic materials, which I suppose is the point that you're touching on there, synthetic materials are now consistent of somewhere in around 70% of all of our clothing. And for those people that don't know, synthetic materials are basically derived from oil. They're petrochemical based materials that have been processed and turned into these synthetic fibers, polyester being the number one player in that field. The problem there is, well, join the dots on that. It means that synthetic materials are plastic-based materials, and then they have further indirect environmental impacts with microfiber pollution, which is basically plastic shedding from our clothes by washing them, entering our water systems, our oceans, and things like that. So that's sort of synthetic materials. And then when we think about them from the end-of-life perspective, well, firstly, we're using them. We're not, you know, we're only wearing our clothes, I think they say three to four times. I can't remember the, the research piece on that, but basically a handful of times. We have that disposable mindset. We're wearing our clothes a handful of times and then we throw them away. So we spoke about that earlier on, but the problem with our synthetic materials is that they are plastic based. So again, if we burn them, of course, the emissions from burning plastic, you know, it's oil when you think about it. But then if we landfill it, they, they don't, they basically don't go anywhere. It is, they, they, they don't have any biodegradability, come, you know, they don't break down. They sit in landfills for hundreds of years. And the research shows that polyester will sit for a minimum of 250 years. Wow. You know, so it's not going anywhere. And then again, when we think about that from a landfill perspective, these materials would continuously emit emissions and mostly methane that comes from landfills so even at end of life sitting in a hole in the ground we have a continuous emission of greenhouse gases so that's our synthetic materials through that linear kind of model throw in the natural materials we think natural nature is not absolutely you know fantastic but the problem is we have exploited this industry so much and put a huge demand on it that we have really poor practices so we look at cotton for like just for an example so we grow cotton fortunately we're growing cotton huge amounts of resources again from water perspective mass levels of pesticides that are being used for conventionally grown cotton then we go through the life cycle of that processing it sitting it you know moving into factory settings you have indirect emissions here from carbon, from, you know, energy usage, mostly, again, being non-renewable energy in the parts of the world where the materials are being produced. Then move into the dyeing, like the dyeing stage of our clothing. And so, again, this is natural and synthetic materials here are posing huge pollution issues globally. Some of the research and visuals on this is absolutely horrendous that the dyes going into waterways, into canals, directly beside factories. Really good documentary, Stacey Dooley investigates, shows some expose done on this, where she actually goes down some of these canals and sees the dyes going into this. But of course, 
what other impact is there? Well, people living there, they're fresh water. You know, developing countries don't have access to water like we have here in Ireland. They don't have taps. You know, they rely on these fresh water streams as their source of water. Heavily polluted, health implications, and of course, impact on life, marine life, fish, things like that. And that even poses further impact on economy within that area and stuff. So, and then again, end of life disposal, we know again how much we're thrown away and getting rid of. There's a huge issue that we have with our composition on our materials. So we, we're now looking at natural materials, conventionally grown, being blended with synthetic materials because they're generally cheaper to produce. So even by natural materials should follow nature cycle and degrade in nature over time, depending on the environment. Absolutely. But because we're blending our natural materials now the stuff isn't going anywhere either and again because we are making say for example cotton in these conventional ways with heavy use of pesticides and water and stuff like that we're th- think about it we're throwing away all of these resources with that product then at the end of life so absolutely no regard to all of the people that have been involved all of um, all of our beautiful planet's resources that we've used we just used them, throw them away then. So yeah, so there's just so many angles from an environmental impact perspective when we think about our clothing. And the reason, and I suppose further to that, is we have a very complex global supply chain as well. So we import massively from China, Asian countries, China being the biggest one there. So even that product could have gone through five different regions, you know, from growing of the material or the processing of the synthetic material to the dyeing, the, the sampling, construction stage of it, to then the shipping, you know, so then we obviously ship over thousands of miles and we have huge embodied carbon with that as well then. So that's really kind of, we think about a product's full life cycle from when it's been born, what's been put into it, how it's been processed, the end of life, bring consumer life, consumer engagement into that as well. We really start to see that, yes, our clothing, the life cycle of our clothing is is really kind of sitting up at the eight to 10 percent of greenhouse gases because a lot of people don't realize the complexities of bringing clothing to life and every stage that happens behind the scenes then, you know, so I mean, my brain is already thinking of the, bits, the buttons, the inner tabs. Yeah, not even talking about the, yeah. yeah the, the button that goes on the inner the tab that I, I cut mm. off. The plastic, the little piece of plastic, you know, the, the tag that keeps the price label mm. attached to the yeah. inside. Yeah. Then it's wrapped in plastic. Then there's a hundred of them put in a box. Then there's sellotape put in the box. And as you said, even people who, because I suppose, yeah, the, the numbers kind of make sense when you think that there's somebody sitting in an office keying in orders. There's somebody in a warehouse fulfilling the orders you know that it isn't just designers and people making the stuff it's all the supply chains that come into it yeah and and as you say like that that whole thing about the end of life like when you look at the this suppose the high volume low value online Mm. retailers Mm. and their returns policies yeah like it's not even worth their while to put the stuff back out on just no a lot a lot of the ultra fast fashion brands if you send stuff back to them, 
some of them not even reprocess, redistribute them because the product of, was of such little value. They're like, we're not going to put the the power like into redistributing um something like that. We'll just put it into a warehouse and leave it sitting there. And then some of them now in the UK again, we won't talk about France, but some of them then think they're doing great by then passing the stuff on to charity and stuff like that, or giving it a second life and all of that. But that just really draws down to. I suppose brings it back to the overproduction model that it's based on, you know. So I know my mind's kind of going, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, and I suppose as you said, the length of time that it would take you to order it online, get it delivered to your house, put it on, something's wrong with it or it doesn't fit right, send it back, even in that short space of time, the next person who's going to look at it probably wouldn't be caught dead in it because it's already you know oh so like that was out six weeks ago six weeks ago you know that's that. not even a season you know <laughs> and that's the thing we don't we don't want like we don't make clothes around in our main season spring summer autumn winter anymore that where most of diners used to create their clothing surrounding that because obviously it made sense because you needed different clothing for different seasons we had now have micro seasons you know so you have seasons within seasons so you know, it's it's nothing even got to do with the weather. You're just using it to produce more clothes. Like, and you have clothes coming into stores on a week to week, day to day basis. For a research piece that I did, I signed up to some fast fashion brands to see how often they were trying to sell me stuff. Well, needless to say, the subscriptions didn't really last to the length of a week. I think because I was like, oh my god. You just sent me this and now it's like in a different color. You know, you wind, I, I, we saw you looking at this, Carrie-Ann, here is this color. So again, going back to that fast fashion marketing model, trying to suck you in, they're so good at it. So what I found from that is they're just the amount of clothes that are being put either physically in the store or online are literally day to day. There's no such thing as monthly drops or seasonal drops and things like that it's just constant constant yeah 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 and I suppose and it feeds into the fact that we like stuff Mm, yeah yeah well like you know when we look at the model on that again we've been led to believe that we need to be constantly consuming if we just want to talk about fashion here again relating it back you know to fast fashion the model of that is to be looking a certain way and therefore consume so you have to look that way again you know so I suppose my annoyance is there's a lot of pressure being put on consumers to change. Yeah. Well, actually, we need to be looking at the industry model changing here on this. So that really kind of frustrates me. We do talk and I do talk heavily about consumer behaviors and sustainable living and options that we can do. We might touch on that later on, but I find it very frustrating. Like, you know, whilst we can absolutely make changes to live lighter, why isn't this industry changing? You know, yeah. why you know, why isn't the pushback on there? You know, yeah. so but just because you said going into the, the industry responsibilities, when we had spoken before, you gave me a new term which I hadn't heard. Greenwashing, I was familiar with. Oh yeah. But you mentioned green hushing. Mm. Yeah, I just came across that recently. Yeah. Yes, that was interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose with those just if to explain what greenwashing is, mm-hmm. it's not just in the fashion industry, it's across all industries. And it's when 
companies slash in the industry basically misleads their consumers on their sustainability and their ethics and things like that. So a good example of that, again, one example that I found in store by a fast fashion brand, going in, seeing a T-shirt, or I don't remember the stand to be perfectly honest, but that it was made from sustainable cotton. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Of course, I'm like investigating, looking at the tags and stuff like that. And then I soon realized it's 3% sustainable cotton is the composition of that. So that's a really good example of, I suppose, physical aspect of greenwashing that's completely misled because you would think you're, yeah. you should. And again, it's so frustrating from a consumer's perspective. You think you are purchasing good, yeah. but the company is misleading. So greenwashing then is, I suppose, a subsidiary to that where companies are no longer kind of talking about their sustainability credentials because they're afraid to because then they don't want to be labeled as being greenwashing it's kind of like the inception of greenwashing is the way I took it you know I was like oh my god you can't do right for wrong this is just classic isn't it um so yeah so it's basically a, a, a company is like hushing down so they don't get labeled as being greenwashing. Um, so yeah, so that that was just something I, I I read in an article, I suppose, in January before our initial conversation. I just thought, well, the terminology is, is certainly um ramping up and evolving. Yeah, but, but but as you said, like the industry knows that sustainability is is a way to sell product. Yes. But if yeah, profit, profit is still the main motive, but profit is the only motivator for anything. Of course. Why it yeah. So I suppose that's always going to be first and foremost. And I think if a financial cost, if there's financial costs linked to the environmental gain or vice versa, then it's just not going to mm. happen. So it, it, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense for businesses to remain in business and not make a profit if if they have to ad adhere to. These yeah. No. And do you know what? You would initially think that. OK. And the reason being is Fashion Revolution did this kind of, it was in one of their fanzines a couple of years ago. Again, I will give you the link and we can put it up for any of the listeners. And what it showed, a breakdown of a 29, I'm going to say euro, maybe it was pounds, I can't remember what was published in, but 29 pound t-shirts say. And who makes all the money, right? So at the very bottom, now this to me, I'd be just like, oh, was 18 pence of labour. Wow. And then the retailer was gaining 17 pounds. And then you have other kind of costs in there among that. So there's all these little lines. So that was based on a minimum wage kind of model. And then transitioning to a, the increase on that was from 18 cents to 45 cents. To transition then from conventional cotton, say, to organic cotton, the cost of the T-shirt was only raised by 154 Okay, because the big books are going to the brand, the retailers, the marketers, sure, you know, of that, you know. So I just find that really, really fascinating because we would think it is huge. Mm. But it's actually not. So went through it again recently. And I went, yeah, this always kind of stops me in my tracks because it really kind of stops our conversation in order to transition yeah. to living wage sorry that was the term I was meant to say living wage in order to transition to a living wage and sustainably source materials there's not that much on the grand scale of bringing a product to life yes of course slightly more 
But as we can see, if you're paying 29 euro for a piece, would you mind paying 31 euro 50 if it has fair trade, like, like you know, living wage certification, sustainably sourced materials, fully transparent, an extra kind of 150? Is that a big thing on such a? I don't think so. Um, but I know people push back absolutely on the price points when it comes to products and materials and stuff like that. But yeah, that's a really a fantastic eye-opening conversation to flip that initial kind of thought process of, oh, well, products are going to be so much more expensive, actually. They're not really, because okay. there's so many other things. But again, going back to how we produce, yeah. there's so many facets along our supply chain. There's so many stops in that production that those costs probably won't really change that much. We just need to look at labor costs and sustainability in order to bring that product into a better product to make it yeah. say and say more yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I suppose then wear it more than three times and you know wash it less all of those kind of things would have mm. to play in mm. as you said that one particular piece and I know you mentioned earlier on about the linear model and I suppose for systems change to bring it around to that kind of circular model sure like, yeah what would you what would you see as being the idea I suppose make probably a bit more of that really isn't it that it's the sustainability is designed in Yes, yes. I think for me, the, the move, transition to the circular economy really makes more sense. And there's a couple of reasons here. It, it definitely brings in sustainability. Absolutely. That's no regard, but it brings it to a whole new level. And the reason being is circular, circularity thinks of the full product life cycle. And it also thinks about user engagement, how we use our products, what we do with our products. And then at the end, most importantly, at the end of life. So to just, I suppose, restep here, the circular economy is our transition away from the linear model. We mentioned this earlier on that in the linear model, we extract, we make, we use, we dispose. So it's disposal. In the linear economy, we bring in different principles we, we say using the exact same kind of stages there, we extract resources, sustainably sourced resources, say. We design products that have designed out waste, designed out pollution. We think of the full life cycle of a product. So even when that product is being designed, we're already thinking, how do we elongate the life of it? How do we elongate the life of it? What do we need to do there? And at the end of this life, how do we keep those beautiful resources that we've already put in there to come back somehow? So whether that's true, repair, remending, upcycling, recycling properly, you know, things like that. So to me, the circular economy, the design stage is fundamental. It's so, like... It, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. You know, we're designing yeah. products for longevity. We're designing products to be used yeah. over and over again. And we're designing products that have absolutely no environmental or social impact along that value chain. And most importantly, we've designed products we can bring back mm -hmm. over and over again, whether it's the same product or it's the materials in it are being used else, you know, for something else. So now that's a very like there's a lot of more complicated kind of terminology yeah. when we talk about to biological and technical kind of terms. But to me, it's just keeping stuff going and the resources more so valuing our resources that have gone into those beautiful products and keeping them 
on this planet, not in landfills, not being incinerated or being sent off to a desert somewhere, for example, keeping items going around and around and around and around. And of course, minimizing the extraction of our natural resources and finite resources. And you mentioned like that piece then by Fashion Revolution shows that it should still be possible to do all of those things and make a profit. Oh, absolutely. You know, because one big thing with the circular economy is it's there's a lot of opportunities for the user stage of a product. And this is where kind of circular business models as such come to life. And we just zone in on fashion there for a, a, a moment. So most profit was made about making products and getting rid of them. Okay, well, they don't make money from getting rid of them. But designing a product, people use them and then getting rid of them. However, the circular economy really interjects here in the sense of the products are being made, but how are they being used? So we start to go backwards a little bit, which is amazing. We're looking at rental and leasing again, which is fantastic. Just brands now that you can be monthly subscri subscribers to or quarterly subscribers and you can get clothing sent to you and then you send them back. You know, in Ireland, we have so many on a few more online retail stores that you can go rent stuff, send it back. So that's one thing of how we utilize our products differently. We design products in the circular economy that are made to be repaired and easily repaired as well. So, again, bringing back skills of alterations. We've lost we've lost such a trade here in Ireland. Mm. We were known for it for so long. We offshored it back in the 80s, 90s again wonder why what came to prominence around then <laughs> you know and bringing back those skills again and even I do a lot of education work in this sector the amount of students taken up sewing in school again and that it's been it's really heavy on the, cur the curriculum again is amazing to see so so using our products differently you know is an opportunity to not you know we're we're not just talking about by the company just you know sold the product and that's where the profitability just so many opportunities in the circular economy to engage consumers for longer you know so you have fantastic brands that are giving that say oh did that zip break come back to us we'll fix it for you mm -hmm. no i don't know whether they charge on that or whatever but isn't it amazing if you invest in something you have a guarantee that this piece can be fixed can be mended you know, and then there's another amazing brand that you could, if the piece, say say if you've got a tear on it and it's a really noticeable tear, and they're like, okay, maybe it can't be fixed. We'll give you credit towards something else. We will take that piece and we actually upcycle them into our other collection then okay. as well. So there's so many other opportunities outside of the just purchasing a product there as well. And then bring in innovation behind the material itself becoming something else but we can we reprocess that material if we have designed for the circular economy we should be able to simply take the fibers of that material and re-spin them into another material and we should be able to you should be if you design properly that should happen very easily and bring other products back to life through that then as well so the opportunities are absolutely endless um and the resale market that's a huge part it's not a very just to be very clear i'm doing talk on this in the next while 
the resale market is not the circular economy. It is part of the circular economy. It is a circular business model in action. And it is fantastic because it keeps our products in circulation for as long as possible. The forefront of that, of course, is charity retail. And then we have a load of vintage resellers, online resellers, you know, um, Depop, eBay, eBay. You know, let's go back to eBay. One of the original ones from 20 plus years that came online to sell those goods from other people. Amazing, their terminology has changed <laughs> over the last couple of years. But again, part of the circular economy because we are now shifting the value. Yeah. So get just not throwing something away, actually valuing our stuff so much that we might even sell it online as well or pass it on or swap it or, you know, not just throw it away so circular economy again loads of opportunities but it is bringing about consumer behaviors about our products in a really different light which is absolutely fantastic it will require industry to change as well as us mm. but the owners shouldn't be just on the consumer and the owners no be the absolutely the industry, so not somewhere in between yeah no, yeah. like the quick win absolutely is consumer behavior around mm-hmm. this, you know, our own behaviors around how much we consume, not just with our fashion, but just overall, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to consume differently, consuming less, really rethinking our purchases at the point of purchase. Why do we need it? What do we need it for? Do we really need it? You know, and still in those kind of mindsets, you know, like I did that. I know it's kind of becoming very popular in the last couple of years, but I think but eight, nine years ago, I didn't buy anything new for the guts of a year. Right. And I needed to do that coming into like really believe in what I was doing and what, you know, what I was talking and researching about in order to shift my thought process on consumption. And it does. It literally makes you rethink your consumption so differently. If I have a wedding, I'm like, hmm, I've got a couple of vintage pieces. When did I see? Yeah, there we that's grand. You know, yeah. I don't necessarily automatically think I need to buy something new. I think of what I have already, you know, so the, your your mindset can shift with and, kind of things. And I think if anybody listening was to think back to the last wedding that they were at, and if I said to them, what were other people wearing? I think they'd be hard pressed to tell you. Like oh, your mask, yeah, absolutely. Your mask, no one's looking at you. Like your mask, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no one looking at you. <laughs> and it's absolutely fine because we yeah. need, I was going back to our earlier conversation, we need to normalize re-wearing. Yeah. And I think yeah. weddings are amazing because I've worn the same dress a couple of times to weddings, but I've styled it so differently between the hair, the makeup, the shoes, things mm-hmm. like that. Put on a different kind of look with that. Yeah. A garment, what you're wearing is only part of your whole look. You can really restyle things and normalize rewearing how you present yourself and how you accessorize and things like that as well so we might just finish off then with fashion revolution week oh yeah great we can talk about that then before i let you go yeah no problem so fashion revolution week is coming around april 22nd to 29th we are in our 10th year of fashion revolution as an organization but to just summarize, Fashion Revolution was born out of Rana Plaza disaster where over 1,100 people perished. That, and those people were making clothes for numerous fast fashion brands. Um, pr- primarily women, low, low income yes. women. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, most, eight, I think nearly 80% of people working in the manufacturing side of fashion are females. Um, so, yeah, so mostly women. So, over it wasn't the first factory collapse hasn't been the last 
But yes, Fashion Revolution was born from that. So every year we and I'm going to say we because I am part of Fashion Revolution. I'm the country coordinator in Ireland and director for Fashion Revolution Europe. So every year we come together for this big fashion moment where we host numerous events um, and we have a campaign that I suppose is the undercurrent theme throughout that and this year is all about pushing back on policy change because we're 10 years in and you know whilst there has been some movement we really need to start pushing back on that so one thing that I personally will be highlighting and really pushing in Ireland is our good clothes fair way good clothes fair pay and mm. um, campaign where we are trying to get a million signatures across Europe to really start embedding the fair living minimum wage um, across the fashion and textile supply chains and stuff like that. Um, so that's going to be a big part of the conversation. Every Now, the reason why I'm talking about it is what I love about Fashion Revolution is there is something for everybody. We, we engage with other people's activities. We're all over Ireland. So a lot of brands, schools, universities, companies want to highlight fashion revolution, whether it's for even for staff engagement. We align with other people and their activities as well. If they want to do something in around that time, you know, most people get in touch. You can catch us on Fashion Revolution Ireland. And if you go to Fashion Revolution, you can search under Ireland then and, and find our contact details there. But yeah, so we do, we can do sometimes 30, 50 events across Ireland in a year. That's slowed slip a bit, I suppose, since COVID, but we kind of do more online activities and stuff like that. So yeah, I encourage people to go online, have a look at the website because there's so, just to touch on our conversation there, really, we didn't really get into the social injustice kind of side of the fashion industry. So uh, the social injustices that do occur across all of this. So Fashion Revolution really show what's going on. And there's amazing resources to download. Even, I suppose, what I was talking about earlier on about the margins of a T-shirt and stuff like that, you know. There's so many amazing resources for people to kind of read and download and engage and be a little bit more informed on the whole subject matter. Thank you so much. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, really appreciate your time and your passion. Thank you so much. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. Again, you can check out some of the links that Carrie Ann mentioned in the conversation below in the show notes. If you have any ideas for future conversations that you would like us to have, please do feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your ideas. Until next time, stay safe.